Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're recording this very special edition before a live audience at the EBRD annual meeting on the Dead Sea in Jordan. We're going to be looking at the world in 2018. What are the big challenges, political and economic, which face business, indeed, which face us all? Our guests are Neil Buckley, Eastern Europe editor of the Financial Times, Sergei Guriev, chief economist here at the EBRD, Alexia Latortu, the managing director of corporate strategy at the EBRD, and Tarek Osman, EBRD senior political counselor covering this region, the southern and eastern Mediterranean, as well as the author of a book, Islamism, which examines the political, social, and cultural battle currently taking place in the Middle East. Uh, before we hear from them, though, and you will also have a chance to ask some questions here in the audience a bit later on, I'd like to ask our audience here in the hall to vote uh, on the EBRD app, if you found it. I'd like you to vote <laughs> when, are you, when you're thinking about the world as it exists now in 2018. Uh, are you A, optimistic, B, pessimistic, or C, neutral? So you can go into the EBRD app. Uh, you can find there in the session the questions and I'd like you now to vote on that question. When you're thinking about the world in 2018, are you A, optimistic, B, pessimistic, or C, neutral? Time to vote. So, according to this, 29% of you are, oh, 30% of you are optimistic, you're still voting. 52% of you are pessimistic, 22% of you are neutral. I hope that adds up to 100%. <laughs> it would be pretty, uh, pretty unimpressive if it didn't. <clears throat> so let me, uh, with those uh, thoughts in mind, uh, the optimistic uh, being outweighed by the pessimistic, let me turn to our first panellist, Neil Buckley of the FT. Neil, what's on your mind? Well, my uh, biggest concern, Jonathan, and uh, I, I didn't immediately want to sound uh, negative, but I see that the, the overall mood is, is more pessimistic <laughs> than optimistic. So my biggest concern is not an economic one, uh, more a political one, but it has economic ramifications, and that is the increasing backlash that I'm seeing in the countries I cover in Eastern Europe, also in the UK and elsewhere, against globalisation uh, and globalism and the rise in... Uh, populism uh, as a response, and particularly nationalist populism. And I think really for the last 20 years, as a concomitant of the kind of uh, shift that we've seen towards liberal democracy, we've got used to borders being removed or eroded. Uh, political borders, trade borders, economic borders. We're now understanding that a lot of people feel that that has been negative for them or they fear that it will have negative consequences. They associate it with loss of jobs, loss of livelihoods, loss of local regional identities. I think the problem is mainstream parties haven't really figured out how to deal with that. Um, and that means more radical, extreme populist parties are springing up who say, yes, we hear you. We've seen that in, in the region I cover in countries like Poland and Hungary. I think it was a big driver in uh, the Brexit vote in the UK, and clearly a big driver in, in Trump. Uh, one of the problems it creates, when these parties get into power, they have a tendency to try very hard to stay there, to undermine democratic checks and balances, use uh, uh, manipulation of media, fake news, and so on, uh, create the kind of soft uh, authoritarian systems that we're now, we're now seeing. Um, it also leads to protectionism, economic nationalism. We're seeing that with Trump. 
Um, and um, uh, it, it also means that it creates an opportunity for external powers like Russia, for example, that would like to change the institutional setup, the global order, to, to play on those uh, divisions. What does it mean for investors? Opportunities are still there. Growth is strong at the moment, but investors in certain countries are facing more economic nationalism, subpar economic policy. And for institutions like the EBRD, I think it means while they in, in the 1990s had a great political tailwind, now they're facing a headwind uh, in many places. And just very briefly, you think we're stuck with this trend for a while? I think this is going to be a relatively long-term trend. It's not just this year. It's been building for a number of years. Um, I think, you know, we've seen a couple of countries now, including very big ones, where parties or individuals have come to power on the back of this, and I think it's going to spread further. You've seen elsewhere, the, you know, the Freedom Party in Austria, a, a part of government. You've seen the strength of the uh, National Front in France, although it didn't win. Uh, I think this is a long-term, uh, until uh, mainstream parties and governments figure out how to deal with this and to start addressing people's concerns. Neil, for the moment, thank you very much. Sergey Guriev, uh, Chief Economist at the EBRD, your thoughts? Yes, as an economist, I will talk uh, about purely economic issues. And in terms of economics, things are very good. We have a cyclical recovery around the world and in our region. We have global economy projected to grow this year and next year almost at 4% a year, which is the strongest growth since the crisis. And we would now say that growth rates above 4%, which we observed before the crisis, were overheating and not sustainable. So we, global economy is in a good shape. It's growing. But I have a concern that policymakers, and that is kind of related to what Neil was talking about, may actually lose the opportunity to use this growth to launch structural reforms, to become more competitive, better prepared for next wave of problems if such problems come, to build fiscal buffers for the times when they need fiscal resources and fiscal space. And in that sense, whatever uh, uh, people say about fixing the roof while the sun is shining, this is the moment. This is when you have an opportunity to prepare for more difficult times. Some countries are doing that, but many countries just enjoy the growth and don't really understand that this growth may not be lasting forever. We will see slowdown. We will see less, uh, uh, less acceleration in some countries and lower growth rates in, in others. And we need to figure out how, how to address those issues. And in our, in our region in particular, we also see financial risks going up. We see that stock prices are probably as high as ever. In some countries, they're literally as high as ever in terms of price to earnings ratios. We also see that corporate debt is now 60% uh, of GDP. 10 years ago, it was just 40% of GDP. And in many countries, majority of this debt is not in local currency, but is in foreign currency. So there are major financial risks that have to be addressed while the sun is uh, shining. I'm not sure whether that makes you an optimist or a pessimist. Uh. I, think, I think I'm optimist about this year. Okay, in a pessimistic uh, sort of no, way. I'm not, okay. a, I'm not <laughs> a pessimist. Yeah, I would vote optimist. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. good to know. Uh, Alexia Latour, too. So the issue on my mind is the future of work, and more specifically, <coughs> are we preparing well enough and fast enough for the future of work? 
And by that, of course, I mean how is technology, machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics, the Internet of Things, how is that shaping, how is that changing, not just only the labor force, but also the implications um, on social protection, the implications for the educational system, for the health system. And there's a lot of talk about gloom and doom or massive opportunity. I'm an optimist okay, at good heart. <laughs> I'm an optimist at heart. But I do think the pace, the sheer pace of the change that we are seeing now creates uncertainty. And it sometimes, I believe, paralyzes both businesses and perhaps even more importantly, policymakers to actually plan for the future. And if we don't think ahead about the kind of skills the labor force needs in the future, the fact that we're going to have to focus on lifelong learning, the fact that the way we think about social protection, the way we think about distribution of income, the way we think about the structure of our tax systems has to evolve. If we don't prepare today, then in the long term, I might become pessimistic. Okay, and uh, Tarek, finally in this first round, your thoughts. You spend a lot of time obviously analysing what's going on in this region. I'm also uh, an optimist at heart. <laughs> <laughs> but Jonathan, as you know, we look at, at the region usually in three different sections. One is where we are right now, the Eastern Mediterranean or, or the Levant. And I think the biggest story in the last six or seven years is the major demographic move that has happened, whether because of the Syria crisis, because of the confrontation with some militant Islamist groups, previous to that, some of the, uh, of the action in Iraq. And basically, we have in this part of the world over 10, some people would say 12 or 13 million people who have been dislocated in the Eastern Mediterranean in six or seven years. This country where we are right now has been bearing immense burden because of that. Lebanon next door, uh, same, same burden. And now you have an issue where they are not really going to go somewhere else going back home is not necessarily an option in, in the foreseeable future, and also the burden on the host countries is massive. That's a big question mark. The other region we look at in, in what we call SEMED is North Africa or the Southern Mediterranean, and there the story I think is also demographic, though from a different angle. 200 million people roughly in, in North Africa, half of them under 30, half of that is under 20. Uh, let's be frank, there are many, many concerns about the heritage of the educational system, about the competitiveness, and that raises the, the, the secret word, but it's the elusive word, which is jobs. And I think that, given the demographics, that will become even more pressing than it was in the next five and ten years. And my final point is the third part of, of, the, of the jigsaw of the region, which is the Gulf. It used to be the, the safety valve, if you'd like, because of the massive export of capital. Now, with, with what's happening in the energy dynamics, as well as some of the major changes in the social contract in countries like Saudi Arabia and the Arab Emirates, then that could be a wonderful momentum for reform, but also it could create some turbulences, uh, and therefore also at least the stabilizing role of the Gulf in the rest of the Arab world probably would not be as strong. So that, that story, to be honest, raises a number of concerns. Tarek, thank you very much. So you've heard the initial thoughts of our panelists here. Uh, our live audience, uh, we're here in front of a live audience uh, in Jordan, 
will have a chance to ask their questions in just a, a minute to the panel and also to vote again on another question, so get your My EBRD apps ready. Uh, just a reminder, you're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives. I'm Jonathan Charles and we're in front of a live audience examining the big issues of the world in 2018. Uh, not just a live audience, but a packed room uh, with some people standing as well, so it's good to see so many people here. Which of the following uh, is what I'm going to ask you now, our audience who are sitting here. Uh, please get ready to vote yet again on your My EBRD app. Uh, look at the question, and the question is, which of the following would be your biggest concern in 2018? A, possible trade wars, B, a rise in populism and nationalism, C, geopolitical tensions, D, the fourth industrial revolution and automation, or E, none of the above. Please vote now. Some people starting to vote already. Uh, at the moment, we've got 4% on a possible trade war, 50% a rise in populism and nationalism, 43% on geopolitical tensions. In fact, that's just gone up to 48% on geopolitical tensions. Uh, let's see where that settles. I should say, by the way, to those people who are listening to this podcast as opposed to here in the room, we are recording this the day after Donald Trump announced that uh, he was ending the deal with Iran. So clearly, perhaps uh, geopolitical tensions are on the minds of people here. Now, it's the audience's turn to ask a few questions. Please put up your hand if you want to ask the panel a question. We will get a microphone to you if you say your name, uh, and then you can ask your question. Who would like to ask the first question? Yes, gentlemen here, we will bring a microphone to you. It's coming uh, over from the right-hand side. If you give us your name and ask the question, that will be absolutely fantastic. Uh, my name is Mohammed Abir Hassan. I'm from the Ministry of Planning and International Cooperation. So I put my question also in the app, but I think it's not appearing. So, <coughs> <laughs> so my question is, the EBRD Transition Report 2017-18 talks about the middle income trap and how countries need to find newer growth models in order to be able to break that. So my question is, for a country like Jordan, that has a huge non-Jordanian component in agriculture and manufacturing sector, do we need to look for other sectors like services? And if that is the case, do we have any model? And I also want to understand what is the comparative advantage, according to the chief economist and other distinguished panelists, of country like Jordan? And what sectors can drive growth and create okay. jobs? Okay, so let's start with you, <laughs> Sergey, very swiftly, and then Tarek. And then actually it does tie to populism as well, so I uh, may take it, it over here. It is actually directly related to all the issues yep. that we talked about, including populism, including future of work, including demographics. And uh, transition report only takes 100 pages to start answering this question, so I'll be very brief. So uh, I, think, I think the quick answer to that question is uh, to move from middle income to high income, you need to build a system for producing competitive skills, competitive human capital. And uh, we just already talked about, and Tarek was talking about, how you have young people coming out of school without skills that are in request, uh, in demand, by the labor market, and that is the major challenge, to create a system of providing skills to young people for them starting businesses, but also for working for established businesses. The future of global economy and Jordanian economy is not in industry or in agriculture. Jobs will be created in services, in high-skilled services, but it should not be just high skills, but also skills demanded by the market. And so the partnership between government and private sector should be there to help young people to get skills and older people to reskill themselves for the future. 
there is uh, no simple answer for me to tell you this is the industry or this is the occupation and this is where comparative advantage of Jordan is. I should only tell you, Tarek was talking about demographics. Some people treat this region's, uh, region having a demographic problem. People in emerging Europe would say we have a demographic problem because young people have gone. Young people have left for London or Berlin and you guys in Jordan have so many young motivated people. So stop complaining, start equipping them with skills. Tarek, you know Jordan very well and this region. I, I would look at it from, from the optimist hat here. The country we're in right now, Jordan, and again, Lebanon, they, they have absorbed, I think, shown immense generosity in absorbing a massive number of, of refugees. And obviously, that has created a lot of socioeconomic, but also socio-political uh, pressures. And the, the, the opposite side of that is that we are seeing very serious reforms in Jordan. We are seeing very serious reforms in Lebanon. We've just seen the sad conference that took place that showed a wonderful commitment by the international community to support Lebanon right now. So again, I would leave it to, to the economists to talk about the competitive advantage of one country or another, but my point is that challenges are creating a momentum, real momentum, for real reforms right now in these countries. And I think that could partly answer uh, your question about the future. Let me widen it out beyond Jordan. Uh, Neil, first of all, I mean, you talked about populism. There is this issue, isn't there, that reinvigorating growth is probably crucial to this question of what happens next on populism and nationalism. Yes, it is, and I think it's, it's not just about growth. It is about the economic model as well, because uh, you know the, the paradox that we confront is that uh, the two countries in, in my region where we've seen populism come to the fore have been economically uh, among the most successful right. and were the most welcoming to, uh, to foreign investment uh, for, for many years, particularly Poland, tremendously successful economy um, uh, and, and still growing strongly now. But I think the issue is that a lot of people in, in the countries uh, feel that actually the, it hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough. They haven't caught up yet even with average uh, EU 15 GDP per capita. Um, they're not yet living as people do in the West. And there is a concern, I think, about getting trapped in a situation where Central and Eastern Europe is, is the low-wage supplier to the West. And I think, I think getting out of that situation and uh, create moving up the value chain uh, is, is extremely important. And Alexa, unless the future of work is got right, then that middle income trap will just persist for many people. No, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons there is so much sort of fear about the future of work is because we've already seen with the first wave of, of, of industrial revolution and with the ICT coming in, we've seen sort of good jobs at the top, good jobs at the bottom. It's not a nice thing, but the lovely jobs and the lousy jobs and a hallowing out in the middle. And there's a potential for the new technologies to actually further accentuate this polarization between the top and the bottom jobs. And that will, by the way, even before that fully happens, the perception of that happening, to your point, Neil, already has an impact on populism. Okay, another question from the audience, if someone wants to put up their hand. There is a lady here in the uh, front. We will get a microphone to you, the lady in green. If my eyesight serves me right, she probably doesn't. <laughs> yes. My name is Ragda Kurdi. I am director at Hayat Pharmaceutical Industries, but I am here as a board member of the Arab International Women's Forum. Uh, nobody was worried about the automation. I thought it was zero. So, although it's my main worry, but I couldn't, uh, I couldn't vote because my app is not working. Uh, but you know, the discussion about future jobs and future employment. You see, what should we teach our children? Don't teach them to memorize. Teach them how to think. 
what do you think? What, you teach them how to analyze, teach them how to do the arts, teach them how to do music. But uh, what about teaching the governments? You know, the governments, no, really, really, I'm not being negative, I'm just trying to analyze. The governments have been there very long time, and they have had practices which worked maybe in the past, which they resort to every time there's a problem. But the new uh, expectation of governments and governance are going to be the safety net for people who are losing jobs or the reskilling of people who are also losing jobs because they are, their jobs are obsolete. And uh, you know, maybe not just plain taxation because uh, the way taxation has been done before is not the way taxation should be done in the coming future. And I was thinking, you know, I don't know if there's an international movement to re-educate government so that it plays the roles for yep. the future rather than the ones for the past. Okay, that's a very interesting and good question. I'm going to turn to Alexia because Alexia and her, a few applause for that question. Uh, Alexia and her team have just finished a big piece of work on the future of work. And also, Alexia has worked in government. Uh, as an official. Alexia, it's all yours. No, I think in your question, you, you obviously started to give the response. I think the strength and the quality of the public policy response to the challenges of the future of work will make the difference about whether there's opportunity or whether we're in more of a gloom and doom uh, scenario. So I, I completely agree with you that policymakers uh, being able to be thoughtful on this issue is really uh, critical. I fully agree with you that we have to think more profoundly than reskilling, because number one, it's not reskilling once. We really are talking from a labor force perspective about lifelong learning. We're talking about adaptability. We're talking about uh, people working alongside machines and, and adaptability. And I think the first thing that we need to do with regards to our policymakers is to improve the evidence that is available to them around the, the multiple forces that are coming together to change the future of work. How do we do that? I think we need to have more transparency around the conversation between citizens and their government so that the citizens are holding their governments to account to actually have this re-education and to deliver in, 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 in more transparent, more open, more, more forward-thinking ways. So that, that the relationship between citizens and governments have to, have to, have to, has to actually change as part of this process. Sergey Gurio. Yes, let me, let me add one thing. You mentioned that uh, this uh, conversation changes what we need to ch teach our kids. And we talk much more now about non-cognitive skills, how you work in teams, how you work for deadlines, and how you feel for others. And uh, the things like empathy becomes very important. And this is what governments should also learn. And Neil was talking about how mainstream parties talk about numbers are too technocratic, talk about technical solutions, while pop populist leaders are all very charismatic. And as long as mainstream parties don't have empathy and don't have charismatic leaders, they will keep losing this battle. I think uh, what we learn now is the political process is not just about numbers, and for me as an economist it's a bit harder to say that, but we need to teach politicians to connect to people, and we need to produce a process which selects charismatic leaders into the government, joining the pro-growth, pro-development uh, parties. Can I just add one thing really quickly? I think getting beyond the electoral cycle is also critical, because some of the fundamental shifts that are happening require long-term solutions, and if, uh, if, if government, if officials are incentivized by four years, five-year timeframes, we're only gonna be sort of looking at Band-Aid uh, uh, solutions and ideas, the short-term programs of reskilling versus the more fundamental ideas. Just very quickly, sorry, the lady, what were you just saying so we can hear? 
democracy is obsolete. Well, it shouldn't be. Okay. Democracy well, is challenging. Well, or at least it's challenging <laughs> in a four-year time frame. <laughs> exactly. Just, just, just in an area where certainly there are issues around democracy, you know, Central and Eastern Europe, there have been lots of questions, Neil Buckley. But automation, in some ways, might be good for Central and Eastern Europe because, actually, they don't have very many young people. Mm. They've got an ageing population. If they're to keep their economies going, they're going to have to be more efficient, perhaps including using automation. Absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, given the, the skills shortages in Central and Eastern Europe, then uh, in many ways they, they face a choice either to embrace uh, greater immigration, which those countries have been reluctant to do, uh, or to embrace uh, greater automation to, to, uh, to raise productivity levels. But I think, I think you, you, you said that we didn't mention automation in our initial remarks. So you're, 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 oh, I see. Okay. In the, yes, in the it wasn't high up on people's worries. No, but, uh, but I think, I think, I think you know, the, when it comes to, to populism, uh, nationalism, uh, citizens often misdiagnose the problem. They, they tend to see the loss of jobs as, as all being to do with globalization and jobs going to China or to India or elsewhere. But actually, a lot of jobs are being lost because of automation and robotization. And so that needs to be part of the, of the conversation as well. Uh, we've got to diagnose the problem correctly in order to treat the problem. All right, I want to ask one question of Tarek Osman. It's maybe something on your minds. As I said earlier, we are recording this on the day after Donald Trump decided to pull out of the Iran deal. Just as, what do you think this really means for this region? I'll say that, but can I one comment you on can. this? You can, okay, question. very quickly, yes. Yeah. Yesterday, there was an event about how to tackle something to do with the challenge of migration in this country, and the UN was represented, a major commercial bank was represented, nine civil society organizations, a number of municipalities, and I think, and a very senior government uh, representative. And the message from the government representative was, you know what, the challenge is huge. We need, not we want, we're thinking, we need to outsource a lot of the execution and the thinking to all of those partners. I think that's a great message that governments are learning, compelled to learn, which is good in my opinion. Okay. Tarek, yes, back, back then from that to uh, the Donald Trump and the I was Iran trying to escape that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a connection between the two, but I really can't. Uh, uh, but the one, the one thing that happened actually in this region, pretty much immediately after that announcement from the United States, was there was a certainly unacknowledged airstrike yeah. uh, in Syria on what looks like Iranian military assets, and the thought is that may have been conducted by Israel. It does show that obviously here in the region this is a very tangible real question as to what happens now. Absolutely. It is, it is not a, a game theory exercise, and it is not a number of essays uh, about polarization, a, a term usually used here. It is very much about uh, a real, in my opinion, war, actually, uh, specifically in this part of the world, the Eastern Mediterranean, on uh, not just influence, but about control of territory, about, uh, about the presence of certain military capabilities. Uh, and let's be frank, uh, whether that is between, in one way, a camp in which Iran is, is the gravity center or a camp in which Saudi Arabia is the gravity center. Of course, you have Israel as a very important player here. So this is, this is a, a very worrying situation. But my, my real concern is not necessarily a premeditated action by one player against the other. My real concern is the law of unintended consequences, that somebody does something with a certain calculus that the response would be limited and that I'm sending a signal or a message, but then the unintended consequences kick in and then we have a by far, by far bigger crisis than what we have actually seen in the last seven years. And my final point is it is not just about war, 
with, with all the horrendously bad things about that, but keep in mind the point I started with, which is the demographic issues. In this part of the world, 12 million people at least have been displaced in the last seven years. Think that that has been because of relatively limited confrontations, not a major one. All right, a worrying thought. Um, a big thank you to our panel here, Neil Buckley, Sergei Guriev, Alexia Latortu and Tarek Osman, as well as you, our live audience uh, at the EBRD annual meeting in Jordan. If you're interested in learning more about what's going on in the world in 2018, there is a lot of material on EBRD.com. And meanwhile, of course, you can share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and EBRD.com slash podcast. You can download previous episodes of the Pocket Economics podcast there. But until next time, thank you. <laughs>